All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This is the third episode of AM Live on Get Colin. I really appreciate you being here. I'm really excited today because we're joined by the first guest, actually, we've ever had on the show, Kevin Gostola, who is a writer and publisher for Shatterproof.com. His newsletter is called thedissenter.org, and he also co-hosts the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure with journalist Ronnie Akalik. And we are speaking today about a story that Kevin has covered exhaustively, um, I would say more in depth than anybody else on this planet. And it really is, I think, the most important media freedom story ever, and that is the U.S. persecution of Julian Assange. And there's just been a major development in that case that we're going to discuss. The U.K. High Court of Justice on Friday authorized the extradition of Julian Assange, um, a two-judge panel overturning a lower court decision that blocked Assange's extradition. That lower court uh, with the judge, Vanessa Barrister, had ruled that Assange, if he were to be extradited to the U.S., would be at risk of suicide. And so she blocked the extradition on those grounds. This two-judge panel has overturned that ruling saying that, quote, there is no reason why this court should not accept the assurances as, as meaning what they say, unquote. And what they, what, what they mean there is they're saying that they are taking U.S. assurances that Assange will be treated humanely at face value. And amazingly, as Kevin writes about, these assurances were given after Judge Barrister's ruling. So essentially, this higher court ruling in the U.K. is being made on the basis of facts or claims that have emerged after the lower court ruling was made, which is just extraordinary from a legal point of view, which is just one of a countless absurdities when it comes to Julian Assange's entire ordeal, which goes back many, year and is, many years and is so multifaceted from how he was investigated in the first place when it comes to these, uh, these allegations of rape in Sweden, although he was never formally charged with anything. He was just wanted for questioning. There's a whole story behind that, how that was basically used to put him in legal jeopardy, keep him holed up at the Ecuadorian embassy. Then there's the revelations of a CIA spying program, uh, talk of assassinating him by the U.S., pressuring Ecuador to revoke his diplomatic status, on and on and on. There's so much to the story. But this case itself, the, the case that Assange has been going through in the British court, you could fill an entire book if not more, about it. And Kevin, so far, has just done so much reporting on it, and there's so much to say about it. So, Kevin, I want to bring you in now, and thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. I just want to get your response, first of all, to the ruling, what it says, and what it means now for Assange's case. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really happy to be able to join you, uh, and, and this is excellent. I, I'm looking forward to being able to hear from others later on in our discussion here. So that I can get an idea of where some other people's heads are on this. I know it's been really heavy for people over the last few days, uh, just because it very uh, vividly marked a moment in this case where Julian Assange was moved extremely close to extradition. You know, the Assange legal team has the ability to submit an appeal to the British Supreme Court. But the High Court of Justice said that this, rec this extradition request should be sent back down to the district court level, which was where it was before Judge Vanessa Baretzer, 
Uh, Judge Vanessa Baretzer was promoted to the circuit court. She's no longer at the district court anymore. So it's now at the same court where we had the main extradition hearing in September 2020. And a district judge there will sign off on it because the High Court of Justice was ordered to, uh, they, they ordered the district court to send it to the home office. The home office is the Secretary of State's office in the United Kingdom. Now, that's going to be put on hold because an appeal is about to be filed, but this is very real. This is the, the possibility of Julian Assange being put on a plane and being brought to the United States to begin uh, proceedings, legal proceedings on these charges in the indictment was made very real by what the High Court of Justice did on Friday. And so essentially, you, you set it up very well, Aaron. What I would add to that is that uh, they are saying that the diplomatic assurances offered by the US government are good enough to uh, be taken at face value and that there's no reason to doubt them. And that in fact, the relationship between, they, they say this in their ruling, I can find the exact quote um, if, if you want me to, but they say this in their decision that the US and the UK have such a close relationship, such a history of working together diplomatically that they cannot allow that to be jeopardized by blocking this extradition request or by suggesting that the US isn't well-meaning when it comes forward and says that it will treat Julian Assange humanely when he is in their custody. So they accept those assurances and those assurances relate to the fact that the US government has said he won't be put in special administrative measures. We can get into that more. Um, they also say that he won't be put in a supermax prison. We can get into that more. They talk about uh, how he can apply for a prisoner transfer to Australia since he's an Australian citizen. And, and the second one is that he'll have access to mental health treatment if he is convicted and, and, and put in, in prison. And, and we can talk about both of those. Um, to me, the thing that this illustrates the most, th this decision, is that we cannot rely on these legal systems, either the legal system in the UK or the legal system in the United States to save Julian Assange. Uh, we, we believed, I think falsely, after the district judge ruled that Julian's life could be spared, that they would look at his mental state and his physical state, and they would say, even even if we despise him so much, we can recognize that this is a frail human being who has paid the price and should be released and allowed to uh, get on with his life because he has been punished for long enough. And that punishment goes all the way back for 10 years now. We're talking about arbitrary detention that has existed for a decade plus now, including being in the embassy and then now the two plus years that he's been in Belmarsh prison, which is treated like British Guantanamo. It's a place for people typically accused of national security offenses or terrorist crimes. Um, and, and he's been kept there and not allowed to be out on home confinement. And we believed, I think incorrectly, that the British legal system might be able to recognize 
the problem of extraditing Julian Assange to the United States. We've believed that uh, uh, maybe uh, the, the, the US system could be a system where people would recognize that it was wrong for these, these charges, that, that bureaucrats would step in in the Justice Department and go back to the position that was held by the Justice Department when Barack Obama was president, because what the Trump Justice Department chose to do was in fact different from what Obama Justice Department officials had opted to do with Julian Assange. But what we see very clearly, I'll wrap up here and, and then we can continue into other aspects, is it's up to us to find some way to shame Joe Biden's administration into dropping these charges. The only way we are going to save Julian Assange's life is by forcing the Justice Department to recognize that the benefit of extraditing Julian Assange and putting him on trial is no longer outweighed by the cost to them. We have to create a cost for the US government. And that is the only way we're gonna be able to save Julian Assange. And Kevin, you mentioned the torture that Assange has been through and the impact of that has just been made very clear because right after this high court ruling, Stella Morris, Julian Assange's fiance, announced that on the first day of this latest extradition hearing, in October, late October, Julian had a mini stroke. Uh, he was, according to Stella, left with a drooping right eyelid, memory problems, and signs of neurological damage. And I know that you observed the all these proceedings, and you saw him on that day, right, Kevin? I, I and you, I, I recall at the time, were expressing some alarm at how he was at his appearance on that day, and this explains what was going on. Yeah, I uh, so just for everyone who is wondering how journalists get access, uh, something good that happened with the pandemic is uh, they've been forced to accommodate international journalists. And as somebody with a low budget, uh, you know, we, we haven't been forced to travel to the United Kingdom and uh, and and expend resources and funds every time that there's a hearing, um, they've, they've granted access through a video platform, so, which is my way of saying there's no excuse for any journalist to not be applying to follow this you know, if they have the time. Um, I get up at 3 a.m., 3.30 a.m. in the morning and log on to watch these proceedings and observe them. And anyone who um, you know, is, is working on a beat at a newspaper or a media organization in which this case should be included, and I believe it's one of the most important cases, as like you said, when you set it up, if anybody's doing anything on press freedom or journalism, if anybody's doing anything on national security related cases, and they are not covering this case, if they are not applying for a credential to the British courts, uh, especially now as we go forward to this uh, potential Supreme Court proceedings, then, then, then their credibility should just be completely shattered in tatters. There's no reason why they should be taken seriously if they aren't um, cluing themselves into what's going on and they can do it. It's easy to apply. I've applied, they've, there is really no um, benchmark that you have to achieve in order. You just show you're a journalist, they'll let you in. You don't have to even go to the courthouse to follow 
these proceedings. And so you log in, they show you a video feed, you can see the courtroom, I can see them from my home, my apartment here in Chicago, I can, I can see it. Uh, and Julian Assange is brought into a video room, he shares the video link with journalists, he's brought in, and uh, that morning, uh, apparently, the, uh, the court had uh, denied him, and he had wanted to, I, I believe he wanted to go to the court itself, but the, uh, for some reason, he was not allowed to come to court, uh, and they had him watch and observe remotely. But he also is not feeling well. Um, they said he was on some kind of medication. That was what his uh, attorney told the judge, why he was not feeling well. But obviously there was something more going on. I watched him while he was there. He, he, had, he had glasses. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's really, you know, he has the white hair. Um, so he's, he's, he's grown a lot older. And uh, he was resting his head on his hand to hold his head up. So he couldn't even sit in his chair without using his arm to try and hold his head up. That was how tired and worn down he was sitting in that video room. And he didn't want to be in that video room. And also, I believe that at a certain point during the time that he was in the video room, he was able to recognize that there were other uh, journalists um, that were on the video feed, I think maybe it occurred to him that other people were watching him because the camera was moved to point directly at him so uh, we could see him. Right. And he, he, he moved out of the frame because I think there's another part of Julian Assange that's really tired of being in a fishbowl. He's really mm. tired of being a public uh, pers persona that is put under so much scrutiny and, and, and put under a magnifying glass. And I can understand that completely. I mean, he mm. goes through this in the Belmars prison. And people have said that Julian Assange is one of, is, is the second most surveilled person in the world. Who's the top, the top person uh, being surveilled by the United States government in particular? The, the top surveilled person in the United States would be the president of the United States. The second most is Julian Assange, who has basically yep. had 24 seven surveillance of himself for the last five to seven years. So, Kevin, on that front, let me ask you, you know, over the course of Assange's case in the last you know, year or so, so much has come out. The revelation of an extensive spying program by the U.S. on Assange, the CIA using the Spanish contractor that was supposed to be providing security for Assange instead of, instead of using that contractor to spy on him. The CIA plot under Mike Pompeo plotting to poison, kidnap, kill Julian Assange. Um, the fact that this key witness used by the U.S. in Assange's case, this guy Siggy, admitted to fabricating so many of his claims. Um, the fact that, of course, this is a media, a, the most um, important media freedom case, I think, of all time. Now that this uh, ruling has come down from the high court and there will be an appeal from Assange's team, are any of these issues um, – Will they be allowed to come up again? Can Assange's team raise any of these issues as they appeal the ruling? Definitely. Uh, what's nice about the matter of diplomatic uh, assurances is that it can be addressed so broadly. And what the Assange legal team can do in their appeal is they can call attention to this 
question of whether the diplomatic pledges can be taken on in good faith, whether they should be accepted and taken seriously. And, and they'll be able to, to show the Supreme Court why those are questionable pronouncements or, 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 or pledges by the U.S. government, simply by going forward and saying, look at the political motivations of the people involved in pursuing these charges. Look at the hostility within the government. Look at, look at the genesis of this case. The genesis of this case was made very clear and very plain by the Yahoo News report. Um, and I, I, I have to say, you know, I'm, I, I'm, you may be stunned to hear this from me, but I think the Yahoo News report was one of the most valuable pieces done by people in the press in the last year on Julian Assange's case um, and, and played a critical role in, in galvanizing interest in this appeal and also um, laid out something crucial that everyone needed to recognize. I was able to tell that there was a narrative to be told, but I did not have the specifics available to me until these Yahoo News reporters, including Michael Isikoff, talked to 30 plus sources and began to put some pieces together of, of what was going on internally in President Donald Trump's administration. What we were able to document is that the Justice Department charges were a direct response to the CIA's secret war on WikiLeaks. And what happened is Mike Pompeo and others are sketching out these plans uh, in addition to their disruption campaign against WikiLeaks in general, uh, because they've classified WikiLeaks as a hostile entity, a, a media organization classified as a hostile entity. They are drawing up plans for rendition, uh, kidnapping Julian Assange, putting him on a, on a plane and bringing him to the U.S. Uh, they're also discussing seriously plans for assassinating Julian Assange. And the Justice Department gets wind of this, and they're very concerned that some point in time they're going to wake up and the CIA will have brought Julian Assange to U.S. soil, and yet he will not have been charged yet and they will not have the indictments ready to go. So this sends them scrambling to create a legal veneer for all of this, a legal cover, so that, when, uh, so that they can prevent the CIA from taking a step that would actually make it impossible for them to ever uh, really bring a case. Because if the CIA brings him to the US and Assange is just suddenly on US soil, but he hasn't been charged, that's gonna raise a lot of questions um, among defense attorneys and then potentially in the minds of any judge that he goes before in the Eastern District of Virginia, you know, as to why, why, why wasn't he charged? Because we have an extradition process. That's how people are supposed to end up in the United States. They are not to be renditioned to the United States to, to face trial. So all of this will be something that they can raise before the Supreme Court. And uh, they'll have the ability to broaden and focus on more than just Julian Assange's mental and physical health, which is really what the focus had been around the U.S. Uh, is a, the U.S. government's appeal had focused on that because that was the very narrow nature of Judge Vanessa Barretta's ruling. But now the way that this has unfolded um, basically means that the uh, 
uh, Assange legal team can reverse this back and, and put the U.S. back on trial for the way that they have abused and mistreated Julian Assange. So I see we have a few callers and I'm going to bring you guys in soon, Andrew and Diego, whoever else wants to join. I have a few more questions. First, Kevin, you know, since you mentioned the Yahoo News report, I agree. It was so important and I'm really glad it was written. I do have to shout out my colleague at the Grey Zone, Max Blumenthal, who uh, over a year ago had a report about the CIA spying operation on Assange and had many of the details that these former U.S. officials confirmed to Yahoo. And um, it was interesting to see the the disparity in, in responses. I mean, Max had this in the gray zone over a year ago. You talked about this at the time, but it didn't, this, you know, this aspect, the CIA operation against Assange didn't get nearly the detention that it got until Yahoo news came along with its story, confirming what had already been said. Of course, adding some new details too about the murder and assassination plot, but it just speaks to the importance of independent media and how people like you and Max have been, on the story for a long time and gotten many of the details way before other members of the media decided to join in. And uh, I'm grateful for anyone who reports on the story, but I just also want to give credit to those who, who've been on top of this for a long time. Um, you, you observed the extradition hearings very closely, and I'm just curious if you can give us a window into how, in, into the farce. So, you know, the, these press freedom issues were raised in front of the lower court uh, and they were basically, ignored essentially so i'm wondering if you can give us an anecdote as to how you know for example uh julian's attorneys tried to raise an important issue whether it's about press freedom the first amendment or about uh his well-being inside the u.s prison system and just how they were dismissed and how the the attorneys acting on behalf of the u.s tried to downplay them and how the judge in that case even though she ultimately blocked the extradition uh, still dismissed so many of the important concerns that that underscore why this case should never have been brought in the first place. I actually, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll answer your question. But I think the there's an example that's fresh in my mind from the more recent appeal hearing before the High Court of Justice yeah, because of it involved the actual Yahoo News report on the CIA's war on WikiLeaks being put before this panel. Um, and Mark Summers, who is an, an, a, an attorney who's part of Assange's legal team, stood up there and, and went to read it and to communicate to the high court um, what was in this. And, and, and it was very clear that uh, the justices were not willing to consider the gravity of what was in this report, uh, that they did not want to be bothered with this because it would basically give them an obligation to reject those, uh, this extradition request. And so Mark Summers is, is reading this and he talks about the CIA and he, and he starts mentioning some of the things that they had developed and the plans towards going and targeting Assange and WikiLeaks. And one of the high court justice interrupts and is like, oh, should we really be that stunned that the CIA was interested in Julian Assange, given the fact that national security agencies had placed so much significance on what WikiLeaks had done? And he was like, well, hold on a second. We're not just talking about like interest. We're not just talking about like uh, agents drawing up reports and analysis and keeping track of a media organization, which, which on its own, I would argue, is not something we should tolerate. 
but I recognize that intelligence agencies all, all around the world, and particularly in the US, are constantly documenting what airs in the media and drawing up files uh, related to certain subjects, and they call this intelligence. Um, but he said, well, look, we're not just talking about that. We're talking about actually sketching out plans to kidnap or kill Julian Assange. And this is, this is something that like really hit me because the High Court of Justice is very clearly didn't understand or know that this is something that existed in the case. And I still, to, to this day, even after this ruling, I don't believe that the high court justices really understand what is going on here in this case, or they, they don't want to. They're, they're, they're deliberately being ignorant. They're deliberately pushing it aside. It does not feature in their decision. If you go through the decision that they issued, in this appeal, it does not appear. Um, it's very clear that they don't want a deal or or recognize that the CIA has this campaign against Julian Assange because it gets in the way of their argument that you can consider these assurances in good faith. And you know, I could say I, I would like to say one thing about one of the particular High Court justices, um, but you know, it's very clear that uh, they they recognize that the CIA. Uh, that, that if they acknowledge that the CIA was a problem, then they would have to set some kind of a precedent or they'd have to issue some kind of decision that rejected this. And they just basically didn't want to. It's pretty clear that they they didn't want to upset the United States. And that's that's profoundly troubling to me. I mean, you can you can see in their decision that they did not want to upset the United States. Um, and I just want to say quickly, um, and, and you'll be interested in this because your work at the Grey Zone, at the gray zone and, and your work, uh, Max Blumenthal's work, um, even Ben Norton's work covering Ecuador. And you've, you've covered the aspect of uh, the way that Ecuador turned on Julian Assange and you're, and you're very familiar with all of this. And I just, I wanna make sure people are called to pay close attention to the journalist uh, work, the, the journalism that Matt Kennard and Mark Curtis have done over at Declassified UK. That Declassified UK for your listeners if they're unfamiliar, but basically they had a story on December 2nd about how the Chief Justice of the High Court is a close friend with a former foreign minister who had called Julian Assange a miserable little worm in Parliament. His name is Sir Alan Duncan. And Sir Alan Duncan was actually in the foreign office, in the operations room, observing through a video feed the Ecuador embassy when Julian Assange was forced out and expelled and then arrested, put in a van in April of 2019. And he admitted that he was trying to keep the smirk off his face while he was watching this. And this person was a longtime friend for like 40 years with uh, Lord Chief Justice uh, Ian Burnett, is his name. And uh, he did not recuse himself from the case. They went to, they went to Oxford together. Yeah, he did not recuse himself. And by the way, after this all happened, um, this person who was the foreign minister goes to Ecuador to personally thank Lenin Moreno for forcing Julian Assange out of the embassy and even, Unbelievable. Gives, even gives him a uh, porcelain plate from the Buckingham Palace gift shop and tells him a job well done. 
Um, and Le- unbelievable. Lennon, Lennon Moreno, of course, takes over in the country because there's a what we could call a right wing upheaval that throws Rafael Correa out. And then now Julian Assange is uh, not only facing a threat from the Trump administration, but also faces a threat from the Moreno government as they collaborate and push Julian Assange out of the embassy. They revoke his citizenship. They revoke his political asylum. They make a mockery of this. I don't know why anybody would ever, you know, it's going to take a lot of work, I think. Not just not just talking about the U.S. and the damage that this has done to the U.S. reputation. Think about why would anyone want to take the risk of seeking asylum from Ecuador after what happened to Julian Assange? So, Kevin, I just want to underscore what you just said, because I, I want to make sure I understand it. You're saying that one of the two judges on this panel that just overruled the lower court ruling and uh, ruled in favor of extraditing Assange to the U.S. is a guy named Lord Chief Justice Ian Burnett. And you're saying that he's a close friend of a former foreign minister named Sir Alan Duncan, who called Assange a miserable little worm. And then, uh, as you just explained, personally thanked Ecuador after Ecuador kicked him out of the embassy. Yes, and, and we're not just talking about any justice, the chief justice of this high court, of this appeals court. And, Unbelievable. and by the way, let me tell you, another reason why we should be very suspicious of these chain of events is because Ian Burnett was not in court on the day that this was uh, read, that the announcement was read into the record. So another justice, Justice Timothy Holroyd, came to court on December 10th, so Friday, and was there, uh, spoke for like 10 minutes, barely gave a summary of the issues, um, barely read any parts of the decision, and then we were done. Lord Chief Justice Ian Burnett was possibly partying with his friend, Sir Alan Duncan, (laughs) celebrating their their, uh, ruling against Assange. Uh, Kevin, let me ask you quickly, because it's often said that Assange is accused of stealing documents from the U.S. and of hacking U.S. government systems. That's not true. He's accused of basically trying to help his source, Chelsea Manning, of cracking a password. But that password, as I understand it um, from your reporting, was not even a password that could have helped Chelsea access more documents. It was simply a password that could have helped her protect her identity. And what I've also heard from you, uh, and correct me if I've gotten any of this wrong, is that when Chelsea Manning was prosecuted – this never even came up in the U.S. government's case against her. Is that right? Well, it did come up. And in fact, uh, what was proven is that it could not have been done. It was not possible. The thing that they're accusing Chelsea Manning and, uh, and, and they're accusing Julian Assange of helping Chelsea Manning to do was not technically possible at the time. Uh, court- and. I guess yeah. what I'm saying is, sorry, I, I phrased it wrong. Was Chelsea ever accused of the same thing that Assange oh. is now accused of? No, and that's important. She was never charged with any crimes related to uh, trying to move through military databases anonymously. And, and why would that have been the case? Because she had a security clearance and she had access to those files and she could read whatever files she wanted in the course of her work. She could access all of these files. You know why every private had access to this material, it's because after the September 11th attacks, it was widely recognized within the U.S. government that one of the reasons why, and this is their official reasoning, I don't know if I fully agree with it as like the 
one of the major factors in the 9-11 attacks happening, and that's probably for a different show for us to go down this path, but just very quickly, what I'll say is they did not think that the siloing of information had been helpful to responding to threats. And so they end up making these database systems and allowing access to people who are either you know, senior, the most senior people, down to lowly private, lower level employees in government agencies in these national security or intelligence institutions have access to these databases. And they're not monitored. Um, you don't know when people are plugging in uh, USB drives or inserting CD-ROMs and removing CD-ROMs. There's no surveillance, really. They're just very trusting. They believe that anybody can have access to those materials. And so, so, so Chelsea Manning had access. She did not have to concern herself with, oh, I don't want my superiors, I don't want anybody to find out that I'm looking at these documents, because none of them would have ever cared that she was reading these materials. Uh, why she was interested in an anonymity, if you're interested, is, is because something we learned about her unit was that people within the unit were constantly downloading movies, music, games, and software to their own computers, their, their military work computers, and it was making those computers run very slow. Um, and so someone came in, wiped her computer, and she knew that if she went back and downloaded those software, movies, music games that she wanted to get back on her computer, she could get in trouble. It might even lead her to be reassigned from this facility where she was working. And so she was talking to Julian about this because she was genuinely interested in if there was a method in which she could anonymously re-add these things to her computer. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, let me stop because I didn't actually know this. So you're saying, okay, do I have this right that basically Julian then is accused of trying to help Chelsea protect herself from, not from being even caught stealing all these secrets, but protecting herself from being caught downloading video games? Yeah, yeah. So this is the whole reason why she's interested in this. Um, and, and So it's not even about, it's, it's not even about covering uh, her her tracks when it comes to, to, you know, taking all the cables and all that. This is about trying to basically avoid being caught for piracy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the whole reason why she was interested in anonymity. It has nothing to do with the database. Ugh. It has everything to do with. Um, yeah. So she, she, for example, uh, the person who testified in the extradition hearing, his name was Patrick Eller and he was part of, the Army Criminal Investigation Unit that um, was also the same unit that was tasked with looking at Chelsea Manning's. And, and he said, you know, what the, so this is something that people need to understand. I'll be very clear. The Justice Department's charge here is technically illiterate. You know, what they're, what they're arguing, if we don't really understand, I don't understand the technical details of encryption, but what they're talking about is not actually possible. But here, so there was Jason, there was a computer engineer named Jason Milliman who managed laptops at the base. And he told the military court during Chelsea Manning's court martial that soldiers cracked his password in order to install a program and then deleted his administrator account. Um, so these are things that were happening. Um, people on the base were constantly seeking to crack administrative passwords so that they could install programs that weren't authorized on their own computers. And that is well known within the unit. Um, and that was a big subject of the 
court-martial against Manning, his, uh, her defense lawyer, David Coombs, brought this up regularly to try to show that there was constant violations happening because Chelsea Manning was criminalized for a lot of things that were routinely taking place in her unit that supervisors I got it. look the so, other way. So, when Jul- so where does Julian come in here? Chelsea is talking to him and she mentions this issue to him and he tries to help her out? What, so she's interested in this whole idea of hash tables. Um, and I'm, I don't have a firm grasp of this because I don't really work with encryption and, and understand like how it works, but there's something related to rainbow tables and, you know, could you do it? And, and all I know is that when uh, the technical guy took the stand, his name is David Shaver, when he took the stand in Chelsea Manning's court martial and was asked about this particular conversation, what he shared with the court was that uh, although they are talking about something called a hash, file, a hash value, in this exchange related to the conversation between Chelsea yeah, and Julian, yeah, right? And Julian, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for making that clear. Yeah. So when they're talking about hash value, they are talking about something. And if you have that one thing, it could help you in hacking. It could help you in cracking a password, but then you need a system file. You need a system file to go with it. And there was never any exchange about a system file. So it's not technically possible. There is no way that there could ever have been a hacking of a password done. It just, it just never happened. And so that, then you have to broaden your right. question to why is Chelsea Manning talking about this? And the answer is the fact is she was interested in this as like part of a career. Um, yeah, basically. Um, um, I mean, I, I have this exchange in front of me that, that she was. No, it's okay. It, it's, 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 um, I think we got it. It's just extraordinary that, I mean, look, first of all, the, the case is fraudulent to begin with. And then as you drill in on the details, it just becomes even more farcical. It's not even what, it, it's not even anywhere close to what it's publicly portrayed to be, which is just amazing. Um, we're going to bring in our, yeah. But can I, make, can, can I make one concise point? Can I just, can I just, sure. Yeah. possible that what I just said was completely incomprehensible to a few of the people listening. So if I could just put it in terms that are very clear, we hear a lot. Uh, from those in our own government and in media that there is a plague of conspiracy theorists who are promoting uh, alternative facts and, and fake news and are, are making up garbage and uh, they need to be policed. We need to deputize social media to go through all, all, all of our accounts and, and clean up things on their platforms so that we have a, a more pure information experience, I guess. Um, and in fact, the Justice Department is guilty of fabricating one of the biggest conspiracy theories through this case. I just want everyone to recognize that they, you know, this is one part of that conspiracy theory. And, and this, what we've been talking about here, is the conspiracy theory that Julian Assange asked Chelsea Manning, or Chelsea Manning asked Julian Assange to help her crack a password so that she could have access to the databases and that Julian Assange was working with her. Now, the other part of the conspiracy theory, in, and this is, this is in the indictment, a lot of people don't understand that this is part of the indictment, but this is a part of what the prosecutors are arguing and what they will say if Julian Assange is put on trial. They 
argue that there's this most wanted leaks list that was put together by WikiLeaks, which is not true. It was a wiki page that human rights activists and attorneys and people all over the world could add documents that they believed WikiLeaks needed to fight for in order to force the release. So they didn't actually put the list together. They op it was an open source document where people could add those things and they could request those documents. And those documents that that particular most wanted leaks list, the prosecutor's conspiracy theory is that this was the roadmap for Chelsea Manning in order to decide what leaks she should provide to WikiLeaks, what she should provide to Julian Assange. Well, the problem with this as a conspiracy theory is that 97% of what was on that list was never searched for or taken by Chelsea Manning, and none of those materials were ever provided to Julian Assange or WikiLeaks. And so then how could that be? How, how could this be the conspiracy that you are going with? Because it doesn't even make any sense. But again, I just want everybody to understand that as we hear our government talk about conspiracy theories, a big part of this case against Julian Assange is a massive conspiracy theory. Which also relied on a uh, documented fabricator, this guy, Siggy, which um, I want to ask you more about later. But first, let me bring in our first caller, Andrew. And I'm going to ask for all our callers to try to keep your questions and comments uh, brief so we can get to everybody in the time we have. So, Andrew, you are up first. And reminder, when you come on to unmute your microphone. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Hi, thanks, Aaron. Such a big fan of your work, and it's great that you're doing this. Um, so I had a question and a comment. The, basically, the way I see it is the uh, I agree with Kevin. We can't trust the court systems in this case, and I don't see what would uh, stop the powers that be, so to speak, to just charge him from for, for some other bogus thing if he somehow, which I don't think it will happen, but if he somehow did get his appeal uh, granted. So um, I think ultimately the worst thing that could happen is he would die in Belmarsh because that sets a precedent without actually having a court case that this is just going to be what the U S does to whoever, um, well, essentially whoever they want, whoever they think crosses the line. And, uh, so I wanted to hear what you thought about that and what would stop the U S from just, you know, throwing him into the gears of uh, the slow moving court system until he dies in Belmarsh. And then my comment is that if he does come to the U S um, there's gotta be some kind of, focus point on this where we gather an anti-partisan movement across the political spectrum it's got to be this is like got to be like the civil rights era it's going to be hard to do that because people don't feel it like forcing people to the back of the bus but people have to be willing to do a direct action non-violently at the courthouse at the prison if he is taken to the u.s and i think that we'd have to grab the bull by the horns and kind of make a stand and if he's in the uk i don't think that's going to happen and it certainly won't happen if he dies in the Thanks, Andrew. Kevin, let me add a question to that for you. What do you say to people who look at this case and say, well, look, why doesn't Julian Assange just come and face the music if he has nothing to hide? I mean, we have free speech rights in the U.S. He can argue that in a court. And let me ask you in, in your answer, if you could talk about the specific court that Assange would face in the Eastern District of Virginia and its record of treating whistleblowers like Assange. Yeah, this was actually what a BBC News anchor said to Rebecca Vincent of Reporters Without Borders when she appeared on the BBC. 
you know, if he if he believes so strongly that he's innocent, why didn't he just come to the U.S. and face trial? Like, like that's how we should handle political prisoners. Like, political prisoners have an obligation once they're charged by an authoritarian or dictatorial or a, a, a regime acting like a dictatorship that they have some obligation to just give themselves over to authorities and hop on a plane and come to a court and explain themselves and say to the judge, you know what, you've got this all wrong. The prosecutor's got this all wrong. Let me tell you, let me outline. And, and, then, and then the idea that like the judge is just gonna have this epiphany and suddenly go, oh, uh, of course, of course, you're totally right. Let's just set you free. This was all a misunderstanding. You can, you can get on a plane and go back to wherever you'd like to go. You can go be with your family. Like that's, that's a fairy tale. And there have been multiple fairy tales told um, the prosecutors had said one thing that was really silly. Um, I could get back to it later, but this Eastern District of Virginia, where Julian Assange will be brought and put on trial, is entirely hostile to whistleblowers and uh, would be hostile to this uh, because uh, they have gone along entirely. The, the Espionage Act prosecutions, the, these judges have had brought before them, they have tolerated completely. They have embraced them completely. They've co-signed. Um, and whether we're talking about the prosecution against uh, John Kiriakou, um, in which uh, Judge Leone Brinkema oversaw, or if we are talking about uh, the judges that have overseen cases against Jeffrey Sterling, uh, Edward Snowden is charged in this district. Uh, that has not been withdrawn, even though you know he's living in exile in Moscow. Uh, there's this is where Daniel Hale, drone whistleblower Daniel Hale, was prosecuted. Um, and so the, the and in this district there is no public interest defense. So that's the thing that's really absurd about people who argue why doesn't he just come and explain himself and just just make his case? Well, you can't really make your case. Uh, and he wouldn't have any wiggle room to make his case. Uh, it's because of the way that this is being charged under the Espionage Act, the prosecutors will have all the benefit of what they've done to leakers or whistleblowers in the past 10 plus years. So what that means is they've convinced the law, uh, they've convinced the judges that the law does not require them to prove harm was caused. They do not have to bring intent. Uh, they don't, have, you know, uh, a defendant uh, does not get the benefit of, of saying, I did not intend to cause damage. I did not intend for other people who are enemies of the United States to have access to these materials. Uh, instead, all the U.S. government has to do is treat this like a strict liability crime. They show that the information was classified, that the uh, typically in whistleblower cases, this is where it gets different. In whistleblower cases or cases where people are accused of leaks, they've signed non-disclosure agreements and they've agreed to protect the classified information and that's why they're granted a security clearance. But obviously in this case, Julian Assange never signed a non-disclosure agreement. That's what I find to be really totally ridiculous about this entire case is that he's being asked to show some kind of allegiance and uh, follow some kind of oath that he never took. 
because he's not a U.S. citizen. He's also right. not an employee or a contractor of any U.S. agency. He shouldn't have to follow or abide by any U.S. law. And, and yet they're saying that he basically should have upheld a non-disclosure agreement that he never signed, and he violated it by publishing these materials. To see this case as anything but a complete farce, you have to accept a really absurd premise. I mean, not only do you have to accept the premise that the U.S. has the right to prosecute someone for publishing information, because again, Assange didn't personally steal anything. He published stolen material. You not only have to accept that, but you also have to accept the U.S. has the right to prosecute anyone it wants, to extradite an Australian citizen who's been to the U.S., I think, once in his life for a couple of days. And you have to accept for some reason the U.S. has the right to to snatch someone who's not even a citizen of this country from another country to bring him over to their present system and, and lock and potentially lock him up for the rest of his life. It's um, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and yet we still have people here in the U.S., especially in our media, who keep saying he's that the U.S. should bring him back or that he's going to be returned. He's not. He has no ties to the U.S. Right. Um, Andrew, just and, yeah. respectfully to clear up, I'm just to make sure I'm clear. I'm not saying he should come face the music. I'm to, to clarify my point in question. I think the worst thing that could happen at this point, not just for Assange, but for the, the fr- press freedom, is he dies in Belmarsh. And if he comes to the U, if he is dragged to the U.S., which I believe will happen, at least we can make a stand. What, what do you think about this? What, what's the worst and best? And Andrew, to be clear, I was not saying that you were accepting the premise of the case. I was just making a general comment about people, people who do. And unfortunately, it's it's all too common a thing where the the premise of this Kafka esque persecution is just not even questioned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Andrew's asking the the, the you know you have what next here in the in the title of our conversation today, and and that is a critical question. What do we do now? With, that we have this high court of justice decision. And what do we do while Assange's legal team is bringing this appeal? Because it's not going to be good enough for us to just sit back and wait and see how they fare before the Supreme Court. I don't think we want to take that risk. So it's important for people. This is, this is what I advise. You know, first and foremost, um, and if this comes off, sh- off shameless and uh, if you think I'm provoked or, or, or motivated by uh, self-interest, uh, that's okay. But I, I do believe that it's important for people to share the work of independent journalists who are doing reporting on this case and to boost it and to make sure that they are, are, are sharing it before they share media reports from journalists and outlets who are not taking this case as seriously, who are not assigning reporters to cover the, uh, the proceedings. But you're going to know who those people are. Those people who are assigned um, are the ones that I have seen listed when I sign into the video feed to follow this case. Uh, the people who you can really rely upon are, there's like less than 10. And that's not to say that there aren't other voices that are worth listening to and following um, when it comes to the Assange case. But I think if you really want to know the specific details, um, get good information out there and ensure people remain informed, then you've got to trust the people who are doing the hard work to constantly follow this. 
So, I mean, I can name them quickly. There's, there's, there's people like Richard Medhurst, who has been um, doing really good work. Um, there's Taylor Hudak, who has some uh, video work that she does through Activism Unique. Uh, there's Mohammed Almazi, who I've partnered with from the UK, who, who just uh, has been helping me to cover Craig Murray's case, which is really important. Um, and he's a big supporter of Julian Assange. Uh, there's Tarek Haddad. Um, there's Stefania Marizzi, who's an incredible Italian journalist who's partnered with WikiLeaks. Um, she does her reporting in Italian and English. Um, you know, look for these people. Look for the look for the threads where people are being recommended and follow those people. You're going to know if they're reporting from those proceedings. And then the thing that you can do is you should confront people who are here in the U.S. who are in Congress. We, I'll, I'll flesh this out more. After, I know we want to bring in other callers, so I'll flesh this out more. But I just want people to think of how few, that's, that's like zero to maybe like a handful of members of Congress that are even paying attention to the Julian Assange case, who have any idea of what's unfolding. And you compare that to the parliamentarians in European countries who have actually been sending staff members or who have personally been uh, attending or following these proceedings. It's just incredible to me. You know, the people here in Congress just do not care what is happening. We technically have so much freedom here in the U.S. We really do. And I appreciate that freedom. But it's incredible how much that freedom is demeaned and is ignored by people in positions to exercise it, especially people in Congress who could be speaking out in defense of Julian Assange. But because of how our political system works, even though they have every right to speak, to say whatever they want about Julian Assange, because of political considerations and how much this country has shifted to the right, people self-censor. And that dynamic extends from Congress to the media. And it's an incredible commentary on the state of our media that the best and really only journalism that has been done on Julian Assange's case, again, I think the most important media freedom case of all time, has been done by independent journalists like Kevin and and others he mentioned, working with very little resources, getting up very early to cover these hearings in the UK, uh, doing a lot of in-depth reporting that is just not being done anywhere else. And by the same outlets that have used Julian Assange's disclosures, I mean, even partnered with him before, now throwing him under the bus. And um, it's all the more incredible after you know hearing four years of sanctimonious complaints from journalists about Trump and his attacks on the media. Here is Trump's most egregious attack on the media being continued by his predecessor, Joe Biden. And people are either supportive or they're silent. It's just an incredible commentary on despite the freedoms we enjoy, we still live under in what is in practice a system where so many people accept and endorse authoritarianism because there's nothing more authoritarian than targeting a journalist for the crime of publishing the facts. And let me just add one comment, Andrew, on, on your question about what is to do. I mean, the thing I thought about for a long time but I'm not prepared to advocate unless I'm personally willing to do it, is a hunger strike. I mean, if anything in my life to me is called for a hunger strike, I mean, this is it. Because Only because I just don't see what other I, real I options we have. I think that would work have. on site if he did it. At court. I mean, it's got to be. Well, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about for Julian because Julian is, you know, he's, he's barely surviving. 
I'm talking about for us. No, yeah, we would, I mean, organize, yeah. get to the places yeah. that if he gets dragged to the U.S., yeah. go to the places he's at and do yeah. this kind of a thing. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I don't see what I mean, that's what's on my mind. Left. Yeah. But I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not advocating that right now because I'm not prepared yet to do that myself. Because, because to do that, you have to be prepared to go all the way, which means sacrifice your life. And that's something that's, that's a big decision. I mean, you really, if you're going to do it, you have to really do it. And that means go all the way with it. And it's something I've thought about um, every day for a long time throughout Julian's ordeal because, I mean, look, the, this is the world's most powerful state going to such great lengths, going to so much deceit, using all of its power to expose or to, to, to persecute and possibly kill the person who has done more than anyone else I can think of right now in the world to expose the truth and to give people the truth, which is just what people need in a democracy and for a democracy to thrive. So um, if anyone is deserving of, of a sacrifice like a hunger strike, to me, it's, it's Julian Assange. But again, I, I personally haven't made the decision whether I'm willing to do that. So I, it's not something I can advocate yet, but it's something that is on my mind. Um, Andrew, Thanks I want to so bring much. in. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. Diego, you are next. And a reminder when you come in to unmute your microphone. Hello, can you hear me? Hey guys, uh, thanks for this and very grateful for your work. Um, Kevin, I don't know if you actually, if you remember me, I actually, I asked for your help for an Assange project for Bob Shear's class not too long ago, but um, yeah. earlier, hey, <laughs> uh, earlier you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Assange didn't want to be there at the trial. Um, and this is just a small detail, but I just want to, you know, ask and clarify because Stella Morris tweeted that you know, reports that Assange didn't attend court in person due to medication are incorrect, that he asked to appear in person, but the re the request was rejected. So I'm just curious if, if what's the what's the deal with that, that he did want to be there in person, right? Uh, yeah, so it's, it is relatively minor, but can I just say that uh, there was one thing said by his attorneys, and then there was another message put out by Stella Morris, which you're articulating, which did not quite match up or align with what Edward Fitzgerald, his attorney, had told the judge, which was slightly confusing, but I basically just reported it all and, and didn't try to make it match up. And then now in retrospect, it seems clear that you know something horrible was going on with Julian Assange because the next day, we didn't even hear anything about Julian Assange. There wasn't even any request put in to make sure that he was allowed to participate and be at the proceedings that day. So I guess it was a moot point and didn't really matter anymore. But, but yeah, uh, you're right. Stella did say that Julian Assange wanted to be there at the appeal hearing in person. Um, for whatever reason, he was not transported to the Royal Courts of Justice. And uh, he was asked to just tune into it through the video room, uh, but then he wasn't really f feeling well. Um, and so he ended up asking to leave the video room that day. Um, and that's how that went down. All right, thank you. Thanks, Diego. All right, Kusha, I'm gonna bring you in and a reminder to unmute your microphone when you come on. Hello, Aaron. Uh, are you able to hear me? Yes. 
Awesome. And thank you for, for pronouncing my name so perfectly. I really appreciate that. I want to congratulate you on your recent award in Mexico City and the previous Izzy Stone Award you received for your um, tenacious, diligent, and gritty reporting um, challenging the Russiagate narrative. Uh, I also think you have a very wonderful father who's done an amazing job raising a son like yourself. I agree. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Thank you. Of course. Uh, when I saw um, uh, the uh, documentary you two were in, the Discordia film, and he was sharing about um, many of the death threats he received for speaking out against the injustices by the Israeli government and how tenacious you were in the film, relentless in the police dragging you down. I just have a lot of deep respect for both of you. And, and so I want to thank you for even having uh, me on this program. Well, that's very kind. Um, do you have any uh, questions for Kevin about? Uh, well, I, if, if I may, and I really appreciate hearing Kevin's commentary, I have a, a Sandra-related question I would like to ask you if that's all right. And it has to do with the fact that, um, you know, I really admire everything you're all doing to uh, save Assange. It's, uh, uh, it's imperative, as you mentioned, for press freedoms. Um, Assange had a program in 2012, the Julian Assange show on RT. And on the first episode of that program, he interviewed Hassan Nasrallah, the secretary general of Hezbollah. And he asked him some tough questions. He gave him pushback, like the name of your show, Pushback. And one of the questions was like, um, you know, Israel says that Hezbollah has fired rockets uh, at civilian areas. Um, is it true? And recently you also had a person, um, Sayed Mohammed Mirandi, on your pushback program. And um, I wanted to offer some uh, commentary myself about that based off of how Assange approached things when he had guests like Nasrallah. Because WikiLeaks itself, uh, I give it so much great credit because one could probably, uh, Assange's organization, WikiLeaks, said that, you know, like in 2000, uh, some years ago, it said that uh, Iran hasn't blocked WikiLeaks to stop foreign influence from coming in the country. It's blocked WikiLeaks to try and prevent Iranian whistleblowers from getting the truth out to lock Iranians, Iranians in, essentially, and should be condemned. So what I wanted to ask is, like, when you were having your interview with Morandi that was recently uh, posted and you've interviewed him before, I'm curious to know why, when he was giving some uh, comments about, like, the sanctions that the United States is imposing on Iran, yes, they are barbaric, yes, they are brutal, I acknowledge that, and that the United States doesn't have that right to do that to countries like Cuba or Iran or whoever that may be. And, of course, when Pompeo talks about precious poor Iranians being shot down, like in Esfahan and other cities, they're just crocodile tears. And same thing, I think, is the case when Khamenei does it um, about Palestinians. So I just want to know, um, like, when it comes to the type of guests you bring on, it seems like with respect to Iran, Aaron, there's a sort of, and I, again, I have a, a lot of admiration for your work, but it seems like there, as Chomsky was talking about, major media manufacturing consent by keeping the parameters and the discussion and those who dissent to a certain framework, it seems like to me that the guests that you bring on with respect to Iran, they stay within the parameter of the Islamic Republic's either hardliner faction, which I know Sayed Marandi is, his dad was a former member of parliament, personal physician to Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, and um, that faction and within the reformist faction, for instance, I'm thinking of one of your guests, Asal Rod, 
who has said that a majority of the Iranian people want a sort of reformism and so on. I just want to say, is that something that you also consider supporting people in Iran who are leading labor-oriented movements? Like, for instance, Christian Smalls, another person you've done great work with, giving a big platform and helping him out for standing up for Amazon workers. And, uh, you know, despite the relentless smearing that goes on from Bezos and others to him, you brought him on your program. There are people like that in Iran as well. There's Ismail Bakhshi, who's one of the leaders of the Haftape sugar uh, factory. It has just around uh, slightly under 6,000 workers. And Ismail Bakhshi has been arrested, tortured, imprisoned, had his family threatened. Sefide Golyan is a very a valiant reporter who was also arrested and tortured in Iran. Um, and so I just want to know, is, is that something you'd be open to, inviting dissidents of Iran? Not saying Mujahideen Khalq type figures, you know who they are. I know that, you know, they're a terrorist sex called they help genocide Kurds with Saddam Hussein and not like yeah. the Halabiyas or royalists. I, I got the question. I got it. So, Kuja, first of all, thank you for this question. I really hear your concern and I, I really hear you're making it in good faith and I appreciate you sharing it with me. It's a question I've gotten from many people, I think, who share your outlook, which is that on my show Pushback, my podcast, I haven't featured um, Iranian leftist voices, voices inside Iran who are dissidents, who are fighting both U.S. sanctions, but also fighting the government and very opposed to the government. Uh, my answer to everyone has been, of course, I'm open to any voice. Um, I have featured voices on my show who are very critical of the Iranian government, including Michael Duran, who's although he comes at it from a neocon perspective, so probably not where you're coming from. But my short answer is yes, I'd, I'd be happy to include other voices. And uh, I've responded to people who've written to me with that critique, uh, asking them for suggestions. Um, I just did the other day to a few people who wrote me. Um, what I also say, though, is that Iran's internal dynamics, who rules Iran, I don't see that as my business. What I see as my business, what I'm concerned about as a citizen of the West, is what my government is doing to Iran. And um, that to me is what I'm concerned with. Who rules Iran is for Iranians to decide. And the best way I think for that to happen is for the rest of the world, especially the US to leave Iran alone. But unfortunately there's, as you know, there's a long legacy going back to the 1950s. I mean, um, we can start there with, with the coup and repeated yes. efforts by the US to crush. Yes any nationalist movement inside Iran, whether that's the, you know, uh, just uh, conservative nationalist movement of uh, Mossadegh, who was overthrown, or it's the, or it's the current uh, government that has yes. been in power for over four decades. My, my concern is stopping the asset interference. And my concern also is, you know, when it comes to the Iran nuclear deal, is getting the U.S. to live up to its own commitments, which I think is the issue now. And that was the subject of my debate with Mirandi. Um, I don't recall in that interview much praise for the Iranian government. And look, I, I'm friends with Professor Morandi, and he himself has many critiques of the Iranian government. Although, although I know uh, there are people who believe he is too close to the government, um, and, and and he doesn't criticize them enough. I, I get that, but uh, to me, he's look. He's a not only a friend of mine, but I think a very important voice, and he's acting as an advisor to the Iranian delegation. I think the Iranian government however you feel about them, has the right to have their perspective aired too. So that's my um, response to that. But in response to your question specifically, yes, of course, I'd be happy to feature Iranian voices uh, who have a different perspective than Professor Morandi. 
That's that's very kind of you, Aaron. And and one thing that I would say is like I know you mentioned a lot about like the 1953 U.S. coup d'état effort. It's called Bissach But one thing though, I think it's left out when I've heard you say it is you mentioned that 53 a lot as well. But the United States was also heavily involved in the ascendance of the Islamic Republic. I don't know if you mentioned that frequently or not, but the Carter administration worked with Khomeini. Khomeini said, we're going to sell you the oil. There was the Guadalupe conference. I mean, uh, uh, Carter's people praised Khomeini like his uh, ambassador to the United Nations said he was a saint. And so this is also a big element. Okay, listen, let me stop you there only because I'm not disputing what you're saying because, first of all, I don't have the historical knowledge on that point to to really uh, challenge you. I I do think there are mixed opinions about that. What I do know is that regardless of how the Islamic um, Revolution came to power, uh, the the, the Islamic Republic came to power, uh, in the 1980s, the U.S. certainly did all it could to uh, undermine Iran by supporting Saddam, and that continues to me that through today. But um, are there certain historical points that are up for debate? I, I absolutely think so. Because I do have Kevin here, and his topic that we had him on is Julian Assange. I do want to keep the focus on that. But look, uh, perhaps in the future I could do a whole show on the issue of the the internal split inside Iran and dissenting opinions towards the government and how Iranian dissidents navigate you know, the challenge of opposing U.S. sanctions will also oppose my government. I think it's a very worthwhile topic. And if you want to email me, we can discuss it further. Thank you. I would love to email you about it, especially this item that you mentioned a lot, which is one of the core tenets of your program, this anti-imperialism. I just want to give you pushback just a little bit before I, I finish, because I don't want to take up all this time. I know it's about Assange, and that's imperative. But that the anti-imperialism was co-opted, much like Black Lives Matter was by Amazon, much like LGBTQ diversity ethics, uh, imper- uh, sorry, inclusion has been co-opted by the CIA and so on. That was co-opted as well within Iran by Khomeini's type figures, and that leftists in Iran who were trying to form coalitions about anti-imperialism, many of them were slaughtered. If you think about people like Nuruddin Kianuri, he was one of the two-day party leaders which fell for this idea of anti-imperialism, and two days were m- many of those killed in the 1988 massacre, which there is currently a trial. I got it. I, I, I got that. Listen, a very close friend of mine, his family had to flee Iran in the 80s because they were leftists. Um, so I really... Really, no. Uh, my concern, though, is, again, what the U.S. is doing to Iran and how the U.S. is crushing, deliberately crushing the Iranian economy, deliberately denying Iranian civilians food and medicine. That's, that's my top concern. Whatever happens inside Iran is, to me, up to Iranians to decide. But look, it sounds like you and I will discuss that further at a later date, possibly even, even here on Colin. So I do want to end it there because I want to keep the focus tonight on Julian Assange. Understood. Much obliged, Jeff. Thank you. Very much Thank you. So, Aaron, I don't want to get into a long conversation on this, but there is something that can be said that ties what the caller was just saying back to Assange. And, and it's, it's the point that uh, we have seen this U.S. government uh, blacklist, censor, and have removed uh, press TV. Um, and they're removing other state-funded media websites and basically saying that the public in the United States and and even around the world should not have access to this content because it poses a threat to the agenda of the United States, to its ability to advance uh, its hegemony throughout the world. And this has impacted Richard Medhurst, who is a a journalist for, who who has his, his show at Press TV. I mean, he's working, doing really good work on Julian Assange. 
but that limits his work. He's had um, transactions with PayPal flagged because they're coming from press TV. Um, and then the other thing to say about Morandi, um, and I, I think this is this goes along with what we can say about Julian Assange too, is that this U.S. government is picking and choosing what voices we get to have access to, who we get to hear. This 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 is this is censorship, and so I think like what you're doing, and again, we're trying to treat this in a broad sense, and and the caller did by mentioning Julian Assange's program that he used to have. Uh, Morandi is has threat has faced threats of censorship and actual censorship on Twitter and Facebook, and had to navigate that. Uh, why shouldn't we be allowed to hear the perspectives of people who are aligned with the Iranian government? Why shouldn't we be able to have access? And I think, you know, if you're not pushing back all the time, you're at least giving a platform to a perspective that people need to hear. And that's something that needs to be emphasized and considered. All right. Well, so let's, uh, Let's end, uh, Kevin, uh, with uh, Julian and what is next for him. I mean, we talked about a bit about some of the options for public activism. You've stressed the importance of people speaking out, people putting pressure on the U.S. government, which ultimately is the driving force here. Uh, But maybe you could just give us a preview of what's coming up next, what we can expect in the coming period when it comes to Julian Assange's case. Yeah, so... The next thing will be this appeal to the UK Supreme Court. Within the next 14 days, Julian Assange's legal team will submit that appeal. And I've uh, broadly outlined what it'll involve, but specifically it'll involve the diplomatic assurances. And I want everyone to be mindful if they're not happy with some of the things you've heard from attorneys because they feel it's been too preoccupied with Julian Assange's mental and physical health. And they wonder, why are we losing site and uh, getting away from the press freedom issues. The legal team hasn't forgotten those. They, in fact, are planning a cross appeal at some point. But first, they have to deal with this matter at hand because the U.S. appeal is advancing in the legal system. And that's the one that's going to matter as far as preventing him from being brought to the United States. But eventually, they're going to challenge the district court decision that set a really horrible precedent for a journalist when it comes to how she treated the arguments that were raised by Julian Assange's attorneys way back in September of 2020. Um, and so now, um, you know, here's what I'll say that I think needs to happen. I, I favor confrontation. I think confrontation is what needs to, ha- needs to take place going forward. Um, if it's through hunger strikes as, as a tactic, that's fine. But what I think really needs to take place is we need to knock the Biden administration off script. And that's only gonna come from people who have access to the halls of power, have access to these officials. Um, I think particularly, if you're able to go to a Q&A event, that's a forum or some kind of, uh, of a panel discussion, or, or maybe it's part of like a festival where speakers have been asked to come and there's, a, there's an opportunity for people to get up and ask questions then you need to consider getting up and using that time to ask them about Julian Assange. And I'm referring to people who are members of Congress, senators, anyone who works for the Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland in particular, 
people in the Biden administration, officials in the State Department, Antony Blinken, who just got done um, cheapening the issue of political prisoners through his participation in a summit for democracy. And keep in mind, this decision was issued on Human Rights Day. Uh, it was just so awful and obnoxious, the fact that this was moved forward on International Human Rights Day. It basically sent a message to everyone very clearly that the U.S. government does not think Julian Assange has human rights, that they do not feel he should be recognized as a journalist. And that's why they think they can ignore the, uh, the objections and criticism from organizations like the Committee to Protect, Protect Journalists and Reporters Without Borders, who they cited and referenced when talking about freedom of expression during the summit for democracy. Now, there are organizations that are critical of them for prosecuting Julian Assange, who they embraced during the summit for democracy. And the only way they can hold those two views and keep them compatible is they clearly believe Julian Assange is not a journalist and does not deserve to have his human rights protected. So we have to see people using their ability to confront uh, these officials out in the open and make those phone calls, make phone calls to the Justice Department, make phone calls to Congress members and senators. Um, it can make a difference. They'll, they'll claim out in the open that nobody in their district cares about this issue. And they'll punt and say, oh, only bread and butter issues. People only care about econo the economy and stuff like that. Well, if people in their district are actually calling and saying, I don't want to support a government that is prosecuting a journalist. I don't want to see a publisher put on trial. And I don't want to see the First Amendment put in jeopardy by this case. They're going to listen to it. They're going to at least have to respond and give some justification. And if we can get them to say why they want this to continue, that's gonna be better than what we have right now because we have consistently seen a refusal to even engage reporters' questions. There are countless clips from the past year of people being asked in the State Department and in the Biden administration. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, and they just refused to answer questions. So we have to find a way to knock them off, make them uncomfortable and get them to be tired of us and that's the only way they're going to drop these charges. You know, I hate to be a, bro a broken record, but and this probably relates to the fact that I've been so immersed in this one topic, or, or you know, it, in this topic so extensively for the, more than four years. But to me, it all comes back to Russiagate. And part of the problem I think we face now for those who care about press freedom, Julian Assange's life, is the incredibly successful propaganda campaign of Russiagate to turn Assange into this, you know, Russian agent. Um, just today I was listening to a, a progressive podcast that I, I used to really love. Um, and I'm not going to name it because I, I, because whatever, because I, I just don't want to call people out who aren't here to defend themselves. But the question was, do we know when Julian Assange became a whore of the Russians? And uh, the guest said, that's a very good question. And these are two, you know, progressive liberal people. So Russiagate has been so successful in uh, inculcating this, this view, this belief that Assange decided to be a pro-Trump Russian agent simply by publishing these, the emails um, from the DNC server. And amazingly, there's been no evidence at all tying Assange to Russia, the, um, the Mueller report 
found no evidence of it. And amazingly, on the eve of the November election, November 2020 election, there were even more unredacted sections of the Mueller report. And maybe, Kevin, you want to comment on this. But uh, it even said, and again, this was newly unredacted. This was not part of the original version of the Mueller report that we saw in April 2019. But the newly unredacted version of the Mueller report acknowledged that there was no tie at all between, uh, or at least there was no evidence of any tie between Russia and WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign. It said this, quote, with respect to WikiLeaks and Assange, this office determined the the admissible evidence to be insufficient um, when it comes to a connection between Assange and Russian intelligence. So it's just, but the problem is facts like these get buried and just not acknowledged by a media that's been more interested in pursuing a disinformation campaign tying Assange to Trump and Russia than in reporting the facts. And when it comes to winning over liberal support, many liberals still blame Assange for 2016, uh, even though, of course, it wasn't Assange's decision for Hillary not to campaign in Michigan and Wisconsin because her team viewed her economic message to be so unpopular that the more she went there, the worse that she would do, uh, among many other campaign failures. But that's, it's a major obstacle because you know to win over the Biden administration, we need to win over his base, which is liberals. But clearly, right now, they're not with Julian Assange. Yeah, and if you saw the Morning Joe segment, it was just the kind of thing that makes you put your head in your hands and just go, oh, this is hopeless because everything they said was a lie. It was, yeah. it was more, it was Joe Scarborough and, Ke- and Claire McCaskill. And literally I, I think everything substantive they said about Julian Assange was a fabrication. Yeah. I, well, I did a, de- I did a deconstruction. I know Glenn Greenwald was on Jimmy Dore's show, did a good deconstruction. Um, there's a lot of people out there that have pointed out, but also the, I want to say the serious news reporter who was outside of the court also got it wrong saying that this was about hacking, even though, He's actually being targeted for the publication of information. So that got yeah. everything, everything started off on the wrong foot um, and then enabled the really awful punditry that we saw from Joe Scarborough, the venomous punditry from Joe Scarborough and Claire McCaskill. Um, now, I'll say to you what you were saying about Russia and, and Mueller uh, very quickly here, that uh, the Yahoo News report was really good on this point because Although it catered to the Russiagate narrative by giving voice to these officials who had talked to these reporters, um, one thing it did point out very clearly uh, was that the, uh, the CIA was not able to confirm or prove that or, or find evidence that Julian Assange was connected to the Russians or working for the Russian government. So that's why they ended up classifying it as a hostile entity instead. That's why they ended up going with non-state hostile intelligence service, because they failed on that point of trying to go after it for being aligned with Russia. And so that's very important for the, the, the folks out there in, 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 as you call them, blue Anon land to, to recognize that Michael Isakoff, who's on the byline, who is the co-author of Russia Gate novels and 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 histories uh or i call it i would call them novels because they're fictions but um that he was involved in that and in that reporting that it includes that the cia was not able to find any evidence though again i recognize they gave voice to officials who were sharing their uh their their fantasies and, and nightmares that they had about what could happen 
to Julian Assange and how Russia was going to get involved and maybe start a shootout with the United States, etc. That was just without any basis in reality at all. All they had to do was pick up the phone and talk to the legal team for Assange, and they would have told them how none of that was credible. None of those were credible fears. Um, So the last thing I'll say on this is that if we can't get them to recognize the press freedom issues that are at stake, and if we can't get them to care because they despise Julian Assange so much, let's at least nail them for being total sadists, okay? Let's at least go after them and show to them the scale of punishment that Julian Assange has already endured. Illustrate to them the the brutality of what he has gone through and how people who are are accused of what he has done would probably never even go through uh, 10 or 20% of the distress and uh, the kind of ordeal that he has suffered. Uh, and, And to say to them, don't you think this is enough? Isn't this enough punishment? Isn't it time to back off? I mean, he's been in Belmarsh security prison for two years, for two plus years. Can I tell you, in the Eastern District of Virginia, if you get sentenced, there are people who have been sentenced for Espionage Act offenses, and they go to prison and they get out in less than two years. And they don't go to maximum security prisons. They might go to a low security prison. Um, although I recognize that Daniel Hale's in a communications management unit, an issue that you know we could have gotten to, but but we didn't really. But but my point here being, let's let's ask them, how sadistic are you? How much more do you? How much more pain and suffering needs to be inflicted? Do you want him to die? Are you really saying the death penalty because the crime of leaking yeah. information should not involve the death penalty? <sighs> And I'll say too, I mean, if only the media could report the basic facts of the Mueller probe, it would, I think it makes such a difference. And the important facts to me to stress include the fact that not even Mueller actually states that Julian Assange got the stolen files from Russia. He disingenuously suggests it, but he can't affirm it as fact because he doesn't have the evidence for it. And he also, unfortunately, for his case, uncovered facts that undermine the claim, uh, including the fact that, I mean, that Julian Assange only first made contact with Guccifer 2.0, which is this Twitter account that Mueller says is Russian intelligence, although I personally doubt that. But regardless, whether it's Russian intelligence or not, Assange only makes contact with that account after Assange has already announced that he has Hillary Clinton's emails. So according to Mueller's own timeline, Assange makes his first contact with Russia after He's already received the emails that supposedly he got from Russia, which, of course, makes no sense. And that's just one of many um, inconvenient facts that just do not get reported. I've tried to report them as much as I can at Real Clear Investigations and the nation in the gray zone. But just facts like these don't get put into the public record because they're inconvenient to the narrative that Assange got this from Russia. Assange, of course, has always said his source was not Russia or any other state party. He at one point offered to provide information, evidence that would rule out, in his words, certain state actors, which was an obvious reference to Russia. But Jim Comey intervened to stop basically those negotiations uh, with Assange and the U.S. So, And I hope one day who Assange's source actually was is cleared up. I hope one day he'll tell us more, although 
he does have a policy about not revealing sources, but possibly there'd be a way for more information to come out without revealing his sources. And hopefully uh, this won't come after Assange's life has already been lost. And I hate to say that, but it's such a real prospect at this point that it just, it can't be, um, it can't be ignored. So we'll bring in, we have a caller in the queue. I will bring her in and a reminder to unmute your microphone. And if you could pronounce your name for me too, because I don't know how to say it. Hi. So if you're there, if you could unmute your microphone. Okay. Looks like our caller is not there. So Kevin, um, I've kept you a long time, so I'll let you go. That's too bad because I actually know this person and they've been one of my most vocal supporters. Oh, I, there we go. It's working. Hi. Hi, we can hear you. Go ahead. Hi, Aaron. Um, it's Georgie. Hi, Georgie. Yeah, that's my name. Um, and thank you, Kevin. And um, Aaron, I just want to say thank you for your excellent work on Russiagate because um, I think it is like a propaganda campaign to undermine public support for Julian and it's been really helpful to be able to cite your work when people were making false claims about... Um, all of that disinformation. I just want to say about um, campaigning for Julian, we've been really successful in Australia. Like we have a lot of politicians, senators and members of parliament supporting Julian and that's because when we engage politicians, we try, because there is um, a political calculation, right, and politicians are careerist and, you know, they're not always principled. I think it's important to help them make a calculation and persuade them that supporting Julian is an asset. It's a political asset, that there's a whole team of people available that will support them and promote them and defend them rather than admonish them for not supporting Julian and being cowards and, you know, blah, 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 because... I just think people respond better to um, rewards and incentives and, um, yeah, there's a whole lot of psychological barriers when it comes to supporting Julian and I just think it's helpful if people take a positive tack, which, yeah, has worked well here. And Georgie, also, let, me ask you, say- let me ask you, let me ask you, what... What is the attitude of the Australian government right now? Have they shown any backbone at all when it comes to defending Julian's rights? Well, the Australian government, no, but it's important for people to understand that the US has a history of interference in Australia, like in Iran, you know, the CIA cooperated with the Crown to remove our Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, who was essentially a very progressive um, prime minister. He wanted to move our country to the non-aligned movement. He imposed nuclear testing in the Pacific. He implemented Medicare. Well, it was called Medibank then. Um, And what else? There's just a whole range. He opposed the Vietnam War. He had ASIS close its 
um, office in Chile when they were cooperating with the CIA. Like, it, I, I just really wish people would understand the history of US operations in Australia. I mean, we have so many military bases here and, you know, Pine Gap is a surveillance um, military base and it, it's, it also has dr drone deployment um, capabilities. And, you know, one of the reasons that I'm so concerned about this is because, you know, in, in, in the extradition hearings, the, the prosecution argued that Julian harmed U.S. national security because the, he increased the risk of retribution by publishing evidence of U.S. war crimes. And, you know, it's not Julian's fault that they committed U.S. war crimes. They're shooting the messenger. And, you know, in, in, in some way they're actually... The, 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 it's like a tacit confession that they're endangering their own national security by even being there. And the whole premise for the war on terror was just bullshit. I'm sorry. I just, I get really emotional about this. I get upset. And um, yeah, but my, I'm getting carried away. My main point is like, just be strategic when you're engaging politicians because it's really important that they feel confident to speak up. That's, that's your Got it. Got it. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin. So yep. let's wrap. Um, how can people follow? Can I say yes. on that? Well, what, let me ask you for you your said? final comment and, and also tell us how people can follow your work. Yeah, excellent. But I want to respond to that caller again. Um, this person has been really supportive of the work that I've done. So I'm, I'm really grateful um, that she's been there. Um, every time that I post something, I, I, I usually see some response and I'm glad um, to have them following. And I think what you're saying is, is good constructive pushback. But I will, I know you don't have the ability to respond because um, you've left, but I, I will throw out there that I think the dynamic in Australia is possibly a little bit better than it is in the United States. Um, especially because Julian Assange has a link back to Australia. And so there is, whether they like it or not, some obligation or responsibility that these parliamentarians need to feel towards one of their own. Um, they don't really want to set a precedent or uh, I, I would imagine it's not going to reflect well as history marches on for them to look back and find that they are totally abandoned one of their own, an Australian, and the next time an Australian is being put in this position and is facing some kind of a political prosecution, you know, are they going to, uh, or, or is it possible that Australians are going to fear um, being left behind by their government and it's going to make them more timid and less trustworthy? I just, I just think that there are considerations that Australian politicians probably have that there's no way we can ever anticipate or expect U.S. politicians would have them simply because Julian Assange has no link to the United States. So there's no reason for them to really care about Julian Assange's well-being. And so my final comment is that, yes, you know, if you have an interaction or a conversation with somebody that's in some kind of position of power, whether it's legislative or if by some chance you get to actually talk to somebody who works in the Justice Department 
uh, gets to talk to somebody who's in this office who hasn't forgotten the days under President Barack Obama when they concluded that it was not a line they wanted to cross. Uh, you know, they were okay with the war on whistleblowers going up to the point where it criminalized people who leaked to the media, but they did not want to pursue journalists. Uh, journalists could be collateral damage, but they would not directly target journalists, even independent adversarial ones like Aaron and myself. But uh, that changed with President Donald Trump's administration. And there were at least uh, a half dozen or so people who resigned from the Justice Department over Julian Assange being indicted and charged. Um, so we know there was some division among the ranks. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Half dozen, huh? Uh, there, yeah, there were a handful of. And there also was that. There also was that spokesperson in the State Department. I forgot his name. Uh, Cro- Peter Cole. Yeah, Cro- he resigned over the Peter. over the torch of Chelsea Manning. Chelsea yeah. Manning Street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 so. If you by chance speak to somebody, you can ask about what it's like in the office and whether people really do support continuing this. But we really have no knowledge of what the Biden administration position is. It's literally the position is no comment. And and that is terrible. Um, And it's sadistic. It's not just terrible. It's sadistic that this is unfolding and they behave like there's nothing to see here. Like this is just like the gears are turning. And there's nothing we can do to get in the way. They did this to Steven Donziger. It's very similar. What they allowed to happen to Steve Donziger uh, of, of Chevron being able to, to deputize, uh, you know, pay a law firm. We don't need to get into his case, but I just want to draw a quick parallel here. Um, that, that they allowed them to take over the legal process, prosecute, even though the attorney's office in New York wasn't prosecuting Steve Donziger. And target him because he had won a lawsuit against Chevron that helped the indigenous people of Ecuador and then make him seem like he was a contemptuous individual, um, charge him with this contempt, put him in prison. He's now out and on home confinement. And the Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Justice Department just sits by and lets this happen, even though it's entirely unprecedented for a law firm to be able to take over the function of prosecutions like this. And that's what's happening here. This is an unprecedented territory in which we find ourselves of going after Julian Assange. And they act like they have nothing to do with it, even though they totally have the power to stop it. And so I think, yes, be smart, be calculated, be precise in what you choose to do. Try to be tactical, but don't hold back. We need people to come out now and and, and show uh, the people in power how the public really feels in the United States and that they do care about the First Amendment. And, you know, if you've cared about censorship on social media, if you've cared about the way that they've you know, been labeling things incorrectly as misinformation to remove it, if you care about the way that the, the Internet and other platforms are being policed, that is connected to this. If you care about having access to journalism that is independent and you don't want it to just be corporatized and you don't want it to just be the kind of journalism that caters to national security, state elites, and, and, and other figures, then that's part of this. You know, it, it, it's not just about Julian Assange. There are real big picture issues that I think everyone who is still listening understands, and those are the things that you need to bring out into the open in challenging and getting. We, we have to. So this is the goal. Uh, this is the last thing I'll say. This is the objective. The objective is to save Julian Assange. 
it's not going to do us any good to sit here and be cynical and tell everybody around us why this can't happen. Because then we're going to be ceding the ground to these people and allowing them to kill Julian Assange. So we have to do the hard work of trying to move the needle somehow so that Julian Assange is freed. And that's going to be my focus going forward for 2022 and the rest of this year and, and onward if that's necessary. And I suggest that that's what everybody else who cares should um, be, be interested in elevating and amplifying and boosting people who are trying to free Julian Assange. On the point of uh, confronting Biden administration officials, I'm going to confess something. And this is actually a call and exclusive. I haven't even told close friends of mine. A few weeks ago, my partner and I were walking in Fort Greene in Brooklyn. And we walked right by Samantha Power, uh, the head of USAID. And I froze. And I was like, I got to say something. And my partner was like, you know, like, what are you going to say? You know, you got to say something. And we were trying to come up with what to say. And I was thinking, you know, Libya, Syria, Alex Saab. Uh, Julian, but I just, I couldn't, I was so kind of frozen in the moment with like, uh, I don't know, a combination of like, uh, just like a rush of like, like a frenzy of to say the right thing in the time I have, but also a little bit of fear too, for some reason. And I just froze and I didn't say anything. And then Samantha Power got into an Uber and went away. And I was like, um, it's hard because it's like, I see someone like that as a war criminal. So it's like, mm-hmm. so how, do, how do you open up with a war criminal? You know? yeah. but, uh, but, 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 but what I want to say is I, I learned a lesson from that is when you have an opportunity like that, you just got to take it and um, to not overthink it and just speak the truth. And in the case of Julian Assange, I mean, there's nothing more important right now than speaking the truth about Julian Assange and confronting the people who are responsible for his persecution. So uh, if anybody ever has such a similar opportunity, I hope that unlike me, uh, they'll take it and, and they won't, they won't freeze. So I want to plug my site and, 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 and let you move on from this topic. But uh, think of what happened with Mike Preisner. If people don't know, he disrupted yeah. W. Bush. And that clip went viral and it did tremendously well. He's, he's a veteran, if you're not familiar yeah. with him. Um, he's married to Abby Martin, credible journalist. And, um, uh, and, 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 and Mike, and, and then I believe Je, uh, uh, who, uh, Jeb, no wait, um, who's the other one? Who, Jeb Sprague, Jeb yeah, Sprague, Jeb, they confronted, yeah. yeah, yeah. Both, so both of them did this. Uh, Mike's went more viral than, than Jeb, but, but this went, it was on TikTok. And it was, I heard that like high schoolers were sharing this among their friends in, in high schools. Um, and, and so we have an ability through this, if, especially if video comes from it, you know, if you're able to record it in any way, to have something that can shape people's minds who have not been poisoned already. You have to think, think of the people who are lost because they were poisoned by Russiagate. Maybe we can't do anything with them. But think of this generation coming up that doesn't have much understanding or knowledge of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And you have the ability through your confrontation to maybe get them to think about something that they never thought about. And they may not know anything about the fact that their government, as they are turning 18 or 19, and just starting to consider what their political views are, they may not even know that their government right now is trying to put a journalist on trial in the United States. And that might cause them to do something that will be uh, a big part 
of getting Julian Assange freed from the clutches of the U.S. government. So uh, quickly, I'll just say, um, if you're interested in following my work, you can go to thedissenter.org, and that's where updates on Julian Assange's case will continue to be, and that's where my, um, my updates and coverage of this war on WikiLeaks and then other whistleblower stories will be. Um, and so thank you, Aaron. I really appreciated being able to share this time with you and to hear from the callers and where their minds were at on this. Kevin, I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight and for all the work you do. It is truly invaluable when it comes to understanding not just Julian Assange's case, but so many other whistleblowers who you cover on the regular. I'm so, so grateful for everything you do, and I urge everyone to support it. Shadowproof.com is the website, as well as Kevin's newsletter, thedissenter.org. So, Kevin, uh, thank you so much. So I had two other items on the agenda, um, including Syria, which I'm going to cross off the list and do another time because I think we've gone so over time. Uh, because this does, this did happen this week, I do want to talk about it before it gets dated and also because it, it'll be very quick. But basically, just on a very lighter note, this week I had the um, honor to go to Mexico City for a couple of days where I was given an award from the Club de Periodistas de Mexico, the uh, Mexican Journalists Association. It's um, I believe Mexico's oldest journalist association. They've been around since 1952. And they gave me an award um, somehow for Russiagate coverage. I, I don't know why exactly a group of Mexican journalists would care about Russiagate, but they did. And uh, they gave me a really nice award and I got to go to this really cool ceremony. And um, what was funny is I had this whole speech planned, but then I got there. And I'm in the room with like journalists who have survived assassination attempts, threats on their lives, you know, uh, who have um, just uh, had tremendous sacrifice to the, to do the reporting that they do that they do. So I was like, "There's no way I'm going to get up and speak <laughs> about RussiaGate," and uh, especially because I don't even speak Spanish, so it would have to be translated. So I didn't say anything, but I just took in um, the extraordinary courage that I was. Uh, lucky to be in the room with. And it was just a really heartwarming experience. And they said, when they gave me the award, they said some very kind things. And um, it was just really, it was, it was really, look, it's, it was special for me personally after, you know, being a dissenting voice on Russia gate, of course, in comparison to journalists who risk their lives, like in Mexico, it's, of course it means nothing, but, you know, relative to my own experience, when it was happening, you know, there were times of like loneliness and uncertainty and career anxiety. Like, am I making the wrong choice? Am I sabotaging future prospects? So anytime you get a validation like this, especially from this old institution in Mexico of courageous, brave people doing such admirable work, it was just really heartwarming for me. And, you know, one thing it underscored to me, I mean, I have such contempt for Russiagate to begin with, but when you step outside the U.S., and you look at it from the outside uh, and you just you just get a, a different appreciation for what a, a farce Russiagate was. Because even if everything said about Russia in Russiagate was true, they, they launched this sweeping social media and email hacking campaign to help Trump. It just it wouldn't it wouldn't even be a fraction of the kind of interference that the U.S. does in Latin America, you know, coups, dirty wars, murderous sanctions, all of which is still ongoing. I mean, every week there's a new example of the U.S. trying to destabilize or overthrow 
a government that's outside of U.S. hegemonic control. So it's just funny to consider um, just what an obsession Russia, Russia, alleged Russian interference was in the U.S. And then compare that to actual interference, what that actually means for people who are bearing the brunt of it in, in, in areas certainly like Latin America. And, you know, to underscore just how far, just how like useful Russiagate was to the elite. I was thinking about it being in Mexico. There's a funny irony where even the Trump administration, which, you know, was the nominal target of Russiagate, right? Even the Trump administration, Russiagated too. They, they, they actually used it to their own advantage. So back in 2018, when AMLO, who was the current president of Mexico, when he was in the, in the election running to be president, and he's, you know, traditionally known to be a leftist, center left leftist. Trump administration clearly didn't want him. So the Trump administration, in fact, accused Russia of interfering in Mexico's election. That This was said by Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. And it just underscored to me how nefarious and cynical Russiagate was, that even the target of Russiagate could use it to its advantage when it could advance a geopolitical goal, which is, for example, preventing the rise of a center-left government in Mexico. So even the Trump administration... Russia gated too, which uh, it just to me sp- speaks to how useful this was to the U.S. establishment, and not really about anything substantial, or certainly not about any real concern for protecting democracy, whether it's in the U.S. or anywhere else. So, those are my thoughts on uh, on Mexico, and uh, it was just great to be there for a couple of days, and I was deeply humbled to um, to get that honor. It was, it's always very nice. So in terms of Syria, there's a lot to talk about, including a brand new New York times report today that has um, on top of a previous report from a few weeks ago, just more instances of the U S bombing civilians in Syria and then covering it up. And there's, there's a series of new massacres that were reported today in the, in the times on top of the earlier massacre that was revealed by the times in the, in the previous article. But I'm going to save a more extensive discussion of that for another episode because uh, we've gone on very long today, and I want to keep the focus on Julian. I also this week had a new exclusive in the gray zone on the OPCW Syria cover-up scandal. More evidence of basically top officials censoring inconvenient findings. In this case, they had the opportunity to consult with a forensic pathologist, which could have helped determine how the victims in Duma actually lost their lives. But as I reported, this uh, this offer was turned down. And then when the original inspectors who of course were censored wrote in their report that a forensic pathologist should be consulted with to help determine how these people in Duma actually died, that recommendation also was censored. And I will link the article in the show notes of this episode below when it's published. And I'll talk more about it at a future episode when we get more into Syria and, um, for anyone listening, I especially welcome debate and pushback about Syria because uh, that's what we're here for, is to engage in critical discussion. So let's leave it there. I really appreciate, as always, everyone tuning in and participating in the conversation. I'll be back next week uh, with more and have a great rest of your night.